Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Ooh, is that pod on? Welcome to the inaugural edition of Broadway Bullet. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo. I go by DJ Copperhead on her other podcast, New Music Mix, but figured that Michael was a little bit more appropriate for this show. We're going to be covering a lot of the shows from the New York Musical Theater Festival, which is going on September 10th through October 1st. They're producing over 30 original musicals, so we've got a lot of material to showcase over the next few weeks. But as the show goes along, we'll also be talking about all forms of theater, straight plays, cabaret, Broadway, off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway, book reviews, and more. We're going to be a little bit of everything, and we're going to be continuing weekly after the festival as well. So be sure to keep tuned in. This episode, we've got interviews with Chris Stewart, the executive director of New York Musical Theater Festival. We also talk with people involved with the show's White Noise. That his spirit's broken and his eyes are empty and Having it almost... Emerald Man. Journey to the West. All my lessons are learned, and my time here is earned. It took millions of years to be working for the big guys. If you're looking for more information on any of the shows we play in this podcast, you can go to our website, www.broadwaybullet.com. Just select the Volume 1 episode, and it'll take you to our forums, where we'll have links to all of the show's websites. You can find out more information. You can also discuss the show and meet other theater fans like yourself. So we encourage you to stop by. Also on our website, we have theater news. We also have videos from YouTube that should be of interest to theater fans, and a whole lot more. So be sure you stop by. But we've got a jam-packed episode, so let's kick it off with my first interview. I've got Chris Stewart, the executive director for the New York Musical Theater Festival here in our studios. How you doing this I'm morning? I'm doing well. I'm doing good. I think we're both uh, kind of crazy busy right now, getting yeah. everything ready to launch. It's a sprint to the finish line now. <laughs> so why don't you tell us a little bit about the New York Musical Theatre Festival. Yeah, well, this is our third year this year, so we kind of built it from, we didn't really know what we were really wanting out of the first year other than wanting to address this kind of need there seemed to be to get more new musicals just up and in front of audiences. And I think there was a real gap that was out there for people wanting that kind of opportunity and needing to be able to take their career a bit more into their own hands. So in the first year, I mean, the ambitions were relatively small, if that's the right thing to say. <laughs> it was still a big first year. It was. I mean, it's... <laughs> uh, look, uh, but I think the way we sort of measured whether it was successful or not was kind of just on whether we could get these shows up, whether audiences would come, whether it would be successful for, for the writers in that extent. And we didn't really know whether, you know, whether it was just... We were 
crazy and this wasn't necessarily needed, but it seemed like there was so many people out there that were facing the same kind of challenges, that were facing the same issues and wanting to get their show moving forward. But musical theatre is so resource-heavy. There's so many challenges in getting your show before an audience and it often feels like your career's completely out of your hands. So something like this, I think, gave people a bit more of an ability to manage the show themselves, to get it up, to to see it before an audience. So um, what's the selection process like for the shows? Um, well, it's sort of a couple of different ways. The main way is something we call the Next Link Project, which is open submissions so people can uh, submit from anywhere in the world and we, for over a couple of months, beginning in January and ending at the end of March, we take open submissions and we'll get a few hundred, probably between three and four hundred, I suppose, a bit upwards, probably above four hundred a year. Um, And what we do with those is every work that comes in gets uh, looked at a couple of times and we sort of gradually uh, whittle it down from, from hundreds and hundreds down to 72 and then down to 36. And those 36 go out to a jury that we sort of rotate through every year. And we try and have an external jury that's made up of, you know, industry professionals, which could be book writers or composers, it could be producers, directors, choreographers. And we typically have six jury members a year. And They'll take it down from 36 to the 18 next link selections. Uh, the other sort of way is we also uh, invite a number of shows a year, normally between 12 and 16. And their works that we've been... could be a number of different things. It could be international works, because quite often they need a, a sort of a, a longer period to get themselves up and, and ready. It could be works that we've been tracking through a development process, either in New York or or outside of the city that we're quite excited by and want to have as part of the festival. Sometimes it's just well-known writers who or you know, that just feel uncomfortable with sticking something in the mail and hoping for the best. They kind of want to either know whether it's a it's a goer or not before they can you know, start committing to the idea. We just find it's a, a good way to balance out the program as well, that we can sort of choose a slate that's really representative of how diverse musical theatre can be and make sure there's a really broad range of musical and, and theatrical styles that are represented. Yeah, now, as I understand it, you provide a lot of support for these shows in terms of getting a space and helping mm. out with the marketing. And mm. But I understand the, the shows themselves are still responsible for a large portion of the expenses. Yeah. What we didn't want to do was just produce 34 musicals, because I kind of think that's a real passive way of engaging with the show. So I, I sort of thought that a lot of writers, you just sort of end up sitting by the phone waiting for the phone to ring, and eventually someone will call me up and with $14 million in a big plastic bag, and they'll put my show on Broadway, and I just don't think that's a very active way of, of managing a career. So what we wanted to do was spread the opportunities as, as broadly as we can. So in a real simplistic way, everything that's shared by the shows we, we cover and anything that's specific to a show itself, the show's responsible for. So we pay for all venues and tech hires and staffing and uh, marketing and promotion. Um, we also obviously negotiate with the unions and sponsors and media on the show's behalf because we're sort of in a stronger position to do that. But the shows, anything that's specific to the show itself, they need to bring in. So, you know, their own costuming or if there's something specific in the venue that they're doing. So typically a show in the festival probably is spending another, you know, between 10 and 20 grand themselves on top of what the festival spends on their behalf. But I kind of look at that now and think that was one of the reasons why we've been able to grow so fast. We weren't saying to the writers, 
uh, great, here's a theatre company that's going to produce your show, we look forward to seeing you opening night. We were kind of saying, here is your opportunity, don't balls it up, you know. If it, <laughs> but, but if there's like someone that you, that you could reach out to that's a relationship you've been thinking about doing something with but you haven't quite yet, you're waiting for the time is right, well, now the time is right, you know, you better do it. And So we sort of found out that instead of it being like a, a, a normal theatre company, which is kind of you know, a very vertical kind of structure where there's a lot of people responsible for their own job and just doing it. We sort of found out the festival was really broad, that as well as all of the stuff we were doing, we kind of had all of the shows out there that were kind of going to their own network of people and, and reaching out in ways that we couldn't have managed if we even wanted to, but quite often didn't even know to go out to a lot of these different communities and audiences and things like that. And it allowed the message to kind of get spread a lot, a lot quicker. Oh no! Yeah, I definitely understand the importance of getting getting the participants actively involved in promoting it. But at the same time, as for a lot of especially artists, you yeah, know, ten to twenty thousand dollars isn't a insignificant it's amount no, exactly. to get going. For those people, I, I've already talked to a couple people from the show, and I'm, I've got the impression that that you've actually, while not directly funding, you've maybe assisted people with finding yeah. the funding for the show. I mean, we have different ways of doing that. I mean, my ambition in the future is that we keep adding resources for the shows to be able to access. So this is the first time we've added a couple of sort of external foundations that the show's been able to go to for sort of artist-specific grants, so we've helped facilitate that. And for all the shows in the festival, we've matched them with, you know, emerging producers that have, are looking to sort of uh, dip their toes in the water because it's a very kind of low-risk way to, you know, just to get a, a stronger skill base, those kinds of things. And... One of the things about New York, why I think this kind of event could only really exist here and not anywhere else, is it's really the only place where there's this kind of critical mass of audience and artists and industry. You know, when we were doing this for the first time, a lot of the, you know, things we were comparing ourselves to weren't necessarily other arts festivals, though obviously they are. It was, it was also looking at sort of film festivals, because I think quite often festivals like that that have been able to grow very successfully and very quickly it's because they become a meeting place for kind of independent artists and audiences that are interested in searching out the next big thing but but also industry members that are looking for sort of talent discovery and it becomes a really kind of vibrant price for those different sort of communities to to meet so with the festival what we've had a lot of success with is matching younger producers that want an opportunity to get on earlier with shows with the shows in the festival that literally get in and have no clue about what to do next because i kind of think that anyone that gets in we need to be able to give them a a clear path they can follow so they're not going to so it's still going to be a really successful experience for them you felt that you were starting off kind of small from the very beginning i felt the festival was very ambitious i mean i think a lot of places were probably started with four or five shows and in rotation, and you pretty much hit the door running with yeah. like uh, thirty. And I was wondering if you hit any speed bumps with that. If shows had ever had to pull out, or because it's a lot of coordination involved. It, it is. It is. I think we were sort of thought in the first year. Look, I suppose I, I was being a bit. I was playing cute a bit, saying that we. What was small is how we didn't want to sort of say this is only going to be successful if five shows from our first year move to Broadway and 
everyone makes a million dollars because we didn't want to sort of set ourselves up that that was the only sort of measurable for for success. But we also realised that New York is a very noisy city that in order to get things above the radar here, you kind of got to build it to a certain scale. Otherwise, you, you end up being just invisible. You might as well not have done it. And I think a lot of what the shows were finding previously and trying to make things happen in New York is if you're sort of an independent producer or writer here, uh, it's very effortful to get something up, but you also spend a lot of time and money and effort and just you're you're a blip on a very busy radar and you know no one notices that you're out there so it was really important to us in the first year to sort of get to a size where it was kind of impossible to ignore you know where we were just going to be very irreverent and noisy and just keep walking up to people and slapping them on the head until they actually took notice and then then we'll Work everything else out from there. <laughs> Certainly, in the all of including this year, there's always been op- examples of shows that we wanted to put in the festival and were unable to. Some, it was more of a case of the first year when we wanted to put them in, they were unable to, but were in the second year. And it's quite often, it's a question of scheduling. Part of the challenge in when to have a process where it's open to everyone to submit is when we finally can get an answer to them in April or May or whenever it is that you're in the festival, you've got to be able to move very quickly to get a show up for September. <laughs> Especially if you're out of town, that can yeah. be difficult. Yeah, so it's a lot of like, my God, how do I make this happen now? So um, that has occasionally been a challenge, though people are surprisingly resourceful. And then you just have, sometimes some shows just have things that are impossible to predict. They either you know, have a child. I mean, <laughs> you're not pregnant when you submit the show, and you are when you get picked, so that's problematic. Um, and also, just, you know, I've had things with people submitted the show and then had challenges with getting all of the, uh, you know, like, rights approved that we need. You know, once you're in the festival, it's easy to sometimes to write a show. Then once we actually sort of say, look, we need to know that this person signed off on you doing it, and... and we need to have in writing this thing and that thing. And then it's suddenly like people need to sort of work backwards and dot their I's and cross the T's. And quite often that's the most challenging thing to do in the time frame that we're talking about because sometimes that stuff just doesn't move quickly. One thing that I've noticed, you, you had about 90% attendance last year in your second year? Yeah, about 94%, yeah. So how do you grow? Uh, look, that's what I've, that was one of our big things coming into the second year. Is It's hard that we've kind of found the costs of doing the festival have grown 30% a year because it's just the more... I mean, we, we want to do more for the shows, but also the kind of down-and-dirty way that we just got it up and made it happen in the first year with everyone saying, oh, look, don't pay me, I'll do it for nothing. Well, that could only happen for so long. So that's the, the cost have been going up for us, which meant we needed to find more ways of raising money to support the festival. But just selling more tickets wasn't necessarily the way of doing that. Um, and part of the way we made it happen is we needed to go to the unions and say they needed to feel that they weren't going to... Uh, you know, approve something like this happening and then find out that we were suddenly in all these Broadway theatres and everyone was making millions of dollars. The only real way the festival happens is from a lot of people investing a lot of time and and effort for terribly bad pay, realising that at some stage in your career you want to be able to invest early on in a project, especially as performers. You constantly end up replacing the 
third Greek boy from the left in the cast of Mamma Mia and it's not an incredibly satisfying way to have a life but if you can come on earlier with a project and you can originate a role and you can stay with it as it moves forward it's a real kind of realistic investment in your career so we were finding when we went to the union that that we needed to move in baby steps and sort of building it they didn't want us to be immediately in very large venues or playing very long seasons with these shows they needed to see that no one could do it as a way of doing things on the cheap when they should actually be taking a show to an off-Broadway venue and doing it under commercial contracts and whatnot. So in this year what we're doing is as we've been successful and as the shows have come through the festival and moved on to you know commercial transfers and and further you know runs like that and they've seen the investment that writers and directors and performers have been making and actually having kind of a tangible benefit for them they've started to make further concessions each year and allow us to move into you know larger venues and and play some longer seasons and with each year we hope that also going to be another way of growth for us that we can just have more tickets available to sell so hopefully we can keep building that with each year that's interesting about all the actors because as far as i know alter boys when it transferred the cast that was with New York Musical Theatre Festival also went with the show to Off-Broadway, didn't it? They did. The only one that didn't was Cheyenne Jackson because he'd already signed for All Shook Up and, you know, couldn't get out of it. But everyone else was available and moved to the, to the cast that opened at New World Stages when it opened Off-Broadway. Now, what are some of the other success stories out of the festival? Well, a lot was in... We had about four or five shows out of the first year that moved very quickly. Trailer, the Great American Trailer Park musical went about uh, a few months later reopened at um, New World Stages and then as subsequently has been touring and now there's a lot of productions that are just starting to open up regionally that show which was a, a great hit in the first year's festival and Shout which is currently playing off Broadway um, Title of Show which is a was a great, great hit for us that's now still playing off-Broadway at the, the Vineyard. Captain Louie, which was playing at the, the Little Shoe, but there was quite a lot of shows in that first year, which I think was partly, there was, a, like I don't want to say a backlog, but there was a lot of shows that had kind of gotten to a point, and I think that was sort of a product of some of the frustration that people were feeling. So there was those shows in the first year. In the second well, it year... It also could be, not just from the show and the arts end, but from the producer's end, yeah. to be able to see this whole new wealth, all of a sudden it's something new and they want to get their hands on everything right away. Yeah, and I think <laughs> I think musical theatre in this city is kind of a beast that needs to be fed. <laughs> you know what I mean? The people are looking for stuff. But it was the, the kind of model that had been happened of people developing things through readings and doing these kinds of industry presentations and stuff. I think it was like a law of diminishing returns. Every time someone did that and it didn't actually get up, it became harder for the next thing. And a lot of times if you go to those sort of industry presentations, the producers sort of sit there and just sort of watch each other more than they're watching the show. They're trying to gauge other people's reactions. And and it's kind of a very misleading way to sort of experience a show. You don't really know. It's hard to gauge, is this really landing with an audience or is it just a bunch of people that don't, you know, that are sitting on their hands and don't want to let everyone else know that they're into the show. And it was a a lot easier, I think, putting these works up before a real audience and letting producers see them before a real audience. Because, you know, no one would accuse most theatrical producers of of, enormous levels of of intelligence. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a gut instinct. How many of them are going to be listening? <laughs> yeah, okay. I'll turn to their face. I mean, it's a gut instinct kind of of thing to be in. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you need to see it in front of an audience. And then when you see people are applauding and getting into it, you're suddenly like, oh, wow, this is fabulous. And then the more information you can get about a show and the later you can kind of make that commitment to spend 
a bucket load of cash on it, the more you're sort of armed with the knowledge you need to make a success of it. So I think it has helped producers seeing these things before audience members and getting things reviewed and seeing them in a much more, you know, you really do see them in a full production of the festival. I've had four weeks rehearsal, it's full sets and costumes, and yet things are actually fully staged. Not that we wouldn't want them as they move on to get further development and be realised even further. I think you're seeing a real show. You're not just seeing a bunch of people reading from a script. So what are the dates for the festival this year? We start September 10. So each year we sort of want to begin a week after Labor Day. And it's a three-week festival. So this year it's October 1st is the last hurrah. Now, what are all the ways people can go about getting tickets to you? We'd mostly direct people to our website, um, which is nymph.org, N-Y-M-F.org. Besides, you can learn more about any of the shows and you can click around and download songs and, and you know, check it out in that way. You can also uh, click through and buy on the web there. Single tickets go on sale September 1st. At the moment... It's mostly available for members. Well, tickets for the festival are 20 bucks each, and typically in the past what we've done is opened uh, earlier to members who, you know, uh, membership start at $60 and go up to $250, and it's up to 10 free tickets per membership. And also you get things like you might get a T-shirt and some party invitations, and you get tickets to some of the concerts and all that kind of thing. You get sort of access to other events that are happening. One of the great things is it also gets you the month of August to to book your tickets as a as a member because as you would have seen from from last year we had a lot of shows that sold out you know within two or three days of tickets going on sale and and for a lot if there is a particular performance of a particular show you want to make sure you're going to be able to get in to see you can't really just wait to the day before and hope you can you know ring someone up and, and get a ticket because they'll pretty much they're gone so memberships was one way to give people earlier access um, other than that September 1st, things go on sale for all single tickets to, to, you know, all available single tickets to all performances in the festival. Well, I thank you for taking the time in the middle of thank your you. crazy schedule, getting, <laughs> this, getting this all going to come in and talk to our listeners. It sounds great. And look, I think it's a, it's a great thing. I hope a few more of our shows can come by and, and, and have a chat to you as well. Yeah, we're hoping to talk to a lot of them. Sounds great. Okay, thanks for coming thanks in, a lot. Chris. All right, let's hear it for Chris Stewart and get ready to talk about our first show. One of the shows that is likely to be one of the most controversial and interesting of the festival. All right, I'm sitting here with a few of the members of the creators and performers from the musical White Noise. How are you doing? Good, Good. how are you? <laughs> Good, why don't you take a moment to introduce yourselves for everybody. All right, I'm Joe Dramala. I wrote the book music and lyrics for White Noise. I'm Ryan Davis. I'm the creator and the director of White Noise. I'm Casey Sheik, and I'm playing Ava in the show. What's White Noise about? Uh, White Noise is about a pair of sisters who uh, is actually, it's actually inspired by Prussian Blue, a real-life uh, twin sisters who live in California, and they're uh, white supremacist teen pop stars. And uh, I got the idea from an ABC primetime special about nine, ten months ago. And uh, it's a satire, obviously, about what would happen if there was a really attractive pop group that sang these kind of awful songs about with white power rhetoric. It's kind of an it-can-happen-here fable and what would happen if nobody stopped it. So how does it feel playing one of those roles, Casey? It's definitely one of the reasons why I signed up to be a part of the project is because it is so dangerous and it's so in-your-face and you have to be completely invested into a role like this to you know, make it believable and make it real, especially since it's you know, based on, on those 
girls. Well, I take it this is a little bit different type of musical. Absolutely. Um, how do the, what role do the songs play in the show? The songs are not traditional book songs. They're written as almost ca- like a catalog musical would be, but the songs also comment on the action. So, for instance, you'll have two characters singing a song to one another, and one of them is saying, I just wrote this song last night about this thing that I was feeling, but it's obviously a song that moves the story forward and keeps things going. So it's a little bit of a little bit of both, but we really explicitly didn't want to write book songs. You know, we wanted to have songs that a, that a pop group would sing. Songs that'll stick in your head, and maybe they shouldn't because of what they're saying. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed a kind of a trend recently where sometimes one person or a couple people will be the main writers for the musical, but they'll bring in a few extra songs. We wanted to have a really quick turnaround because we wanted to address this topic while it was still relevant, while this group of Prussian Blue was still out there. So, uh, I, Joe wrote, you know, the book and uh, the bulk of the score and the music, and we brought in some incredible additional songwriters to write some some songs for the group, just like a real pop group would. Yeah. Uh, we should probably name them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Joe Jamala, Joe Jamala, Joe Jamala. <laughs> right, well, there's, there's, there's that guy. Um, we also have Rick Crome, who's great, Larry O'Keefe, Binge Pasek and Justin Paul, who are a team, Ben Cohn and Sean McDaniel, who are a team, and I'm leaving one out. Glenn uh, Kelly. Eric, Glenn Kelly and Eric Svekar. So, and they're all like just fantastic. Okay, we're about to play one of the songs from the show. Which one would you like us to play first? I think Be Strong is one. Yeah, yeah Be Strong is the big 11 o'clock number between the two sisters. So. 10.30. All right, well, let's 10.30. Take, <laughs> all right, well, let's take a listen, and then we'll be back to chat a little bit more with you. If you're hurt inside, or you fall down too much, if you're stuck somewhere and can't seem to make it through, if you're torn apart, look inside your heart. There'll be hope to guide you, just wait and see, so be strong. Just sing this little song, be strong, be strong. When the world rushes in and you've been kept away, oh, you can get swept away by the smiles and the promises. Forget yourself If you let yourself So hold tight To all the things you believe And be strong And you'll know what's right and wrong Be strong Be strong Someday the world will change And we will be free and last Things are going to be so good for us from here on out. So long as we stick together and stop being ashamed of who we are. So be
understand that this show has been under development very quickly. What's the story with that? Oh, I, I had the idea back when I was uh, working on the, the Secret Garden, this big benefit concert in December. I contacted uh, Joe right away and uh, Todd Underwood, who was a choreographer in that, who's amazing, who is actually a backup in sync dancer, so he's, he knows the Perfect, pop world yeah. really well. Then I was like, you know, I want to write this show and I want to get it up and do it uh, at the Fringe this summer, so let's see if we can we can do it quickly and get all the songwriters I know from my five years in New York to contribute something so we can get it up in time. That was kind of the initial thought, and uh, it developed into more than that with all these great ideas from all these different people. Yeah, it was funny. Ryan didn't think I was going to be interested. He just told me about his idea for this show, and I was like, well, you got to let me write the book. And then like, it just kind of grew from there. Yeah. Now, how did Casey get involved in the show? Ryan Davis found me on an audition. <laughs> yeah, I, I was the assistant director on an amazing revival of Jacques Brel at the Zipper Theater currently playing. Casey came in to audition from the roles, and I saw her. I'm like, she's so fantastic. She'd be perfect for one of these sisters. Thanks, so I, I think I called her like the next day and said, you're coming in to, to do this reading of White Noise. You've all done a couple different things, you know, in, in your careers and meeting up in this thing. And I understand, you know, Joe and Ryan, you guys met in quite a different way than one would expect for a theater pair. Uh, Joe and I actually met on the Howard Dean campaign. Joe was one of Dean's primary speechwriters, and I was a, a blogger, organizer, uh, videographer, kind of everything, kind of Howard Dean kid. And uh, we both kind of discovered when we were in Vermont that we loved musical theater, which was rare. And yeah, we had this, we drove out to Iowa together, and there was like this famous car ride in our, in our friendship. <laughs> Where he, like, tortured me with the Les Mis CD. <laughs> I understand that Joe, you were produced very early as a writer-composer. Yeah, I had a show uh, out in L.A. when I was 18 called Sky's End. It was produced at the Blank Theater Company, which was great. It was also a little overwhelming, so... I ended up kind of going back to San Antonio after that. I don't know if it was the right thing to do or not, but here I am. Hey. <laughs> and now, Ryan, was your tickets flyering gig before or after Howard Dean? Uh, it was definitely before. I, when, I, when I first moved to New York, uh, I, I did work at TKDS, and I handed out shows. Uh, How old were you? I was 18. 18 years I, old. I handed out, like, uh, you know, gr was great that shows. Was last like, year? Yeah, it was last <laughs> year. Uh, for Naked Boys Singing, which is one of the big ones we worked on. And, and, uh, what show is that? It's uh, with Naked Boys Who Sing. Uh. Yeah. It was actually illegal for someone so young <laughs> to hand out flyers for Naked Boys Singing. I, I got a lot of, are you in it? <laughs> now, somebody's looking for just a quick part-time gig to get them through, who should they contact to do, like, flyering gigs? For Go them? by TKGS and harass all the flyer guys. That's what I did. And, and the great thing about it is you get free tickets. I mean, I, I saw in my first three years in New York probably over 250 shows, so I got to in, learn from seeing and doing. Casey, I understand that you've been doing theater, but you're about to kind of make a big shift. I, absolutely. Um, I've been doing theater all my life. I went to school for it. I, you know, toured around with bus and truck productions, one-nighters in hotels, and I was just doing the Queen musical in Las Vegas, which was, you know, kind of life-changing and pointed me in the direction of uh, working on my recording career and um, working on an EP over at a studio in Times Square around the corner from where we are. I'll plug my website at www.caseychic.com. 
Casey Sheik, yeah. Now, uh, is that a relation to anybody in particular? <laughs> wow. Yes, it seems like uh, with, with all of the press for White Noise now, it's actually very timely that uh, Duncan, my brother, Duncan's actually the composer of Spring Awakening, which is making a beautiful move to Broadway in the fall. Uh, Spring will awaken in the fall, as we're all saying in the family. So you're kind of shifting as Duncan started in kind of pop. Now right. Duncan, the theater Duncan and, and I were walking down the street after I saw Spring Awakening, and, you know, he was kind of laughing at the fact that, oh, no now you're being a rock star and I'm writing for theater and you know it's something very unconventional for Duncan to move to and it, you know the project that, that he's involved with right now is kind of you know cutting edge and new and fresh and theater needs it right now so it's it's great to be one in one doing projects at the same time it's a beautiful show I had a chance to see it a couple months ago at Atlantic and it's yeah. the score is terrific and the kids in it are so talented and so blessed to be moving to Broadway with such a, you know an amazing new project <laughs> for the listeners who may not be familiar with Duncan I'm barely breathing. Yeah, and <laughs> barely breathing was actually the the number one most played song on radio the year it was out. Yeah, was, you've done uh, your research, sir. What are the dates for White Noise? Um, we're playing at the Barrel Group Theater um, from September 18th to September 30th. And then you can check out the website whitenoisemusical.com for more information on that. And uh, I understand that you've got everything kind of prepped ready for production if somebody wanted to put on the show somewhere else. Absolutely. Sure, we're ready to do it. I would love to go to London. Anybody out there listening? <laughs> <laughs> you would love to go? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm with the show. Yeah, both. <laughs> and uh, is the easiest way to contact you from through the website? Oh, the show? yeah, definitely. In- definitely. Info at whitenoisethemusical.com. I-, I definitely want to thank you guys for taking the time to come in and thank speak you. with Broadway Bullet. Thank you. All of our listeners. Uh, we're about to play a second song from the show. So uh, you want to tell us a little bit about this last song? The song is called Good Man Trying, and it's a country ballad, and there's a very subtle anti-immigrant tone to it. Ava's telling the story of of what happened to her father and how he lost his job because these people moved to town, and and now the the people who live in the town can't get the jobs anymore, et cetera, et cetera. All right, well, here it is, and thanks for coming down. Thank you. Thank you. Thompson Lumberyard So 
So be on the lookout for white noise at the New York Musical Theater Festival. We're going to switch gears. There's lots of different styles of shows at the New York Musical Theater Festival. And here's something a little bit more traditional. I have a couple people in the studio with me from the production of Having It Almost playing at the New York Musical Theater Festival. How are you two doing? Good. Very good. You want to take a second to introduce yourselves to our listeners? I'm Wendy Perlman. Wendy Perlman is the conceiver and co-book writer of Having It Almost, and I'm Jeremiah Boskang. I'm the producer of Having It Almost. Before we talk about the show a little bit, I wanted to talk about your background a little bit, Wendy. Uh, I understand you started off as a performer in musical theater. I graduated from the Cincinnati Conservatory of Music, and then I spent 10 years pursuing a career in musical theater. Um, and then I went on to leave the business to um, have two children. My boys are four and eight. Wendy and I are married, and her boys are my boys. So Now, uh, how was the transition from being a performer to a mother? A lot harder than I expected, absolutely. I think being um, a stay-at-home mom is, is absolutely the hardest job you could ever. I make show business look like a piece of cake, that's for sure. I um, was feeling very frustrated and not very creatively fulfilled, and I was looking for some sort of way to express myself creatively, and this project grew out of um, my need to do that. So how did that lead into the themes and, and what is Having It Almost actually about? Having It Almost explores a lot of issues that I'm very passionate about. Um, it explores the issues of the women of my generation. I'm actually 43 years old. So the musical addresses uh, contemporary issues like infidelity, infertility, career versus family, being single by choice, being single not by choice, and the myths of motherhood. I felt like I had a story to tell, and if I had a story to tell, pretty much everybody at this stage of life, midlife, does have a story to tell and we all have things that we are very proud of and we all have something that we're still seeking that we don't have hence the title having it almost now i understand this originally 
when you started writing this, it was going to be more like a series of vignettes, kind of like maybe Close Than Ever by Maltby and Shire. When the process started about four and a half years ago, I just went out to the community of composers and lyricists seeking songs about subjects that I wanted to address in this what was going to be a musical review. But then when I was lucky enough two and a half years ago to start collaborating with David Goldsmith and John Cavanaugh, what was once a musical review evolved into a two-act book musical that it is today. David Goldsmith is the lyricist co-book writer, and John is the composer of the, the show. And originally, they were maybe going to contribute a song or two, but then as they talked more with Wendy and looked at the, the massive material that we had accumulated, they really started to see, you know, there's a potential here to make this really a, a full two-act book musical with dimensionalized characters that can represent the different life choices and life situations that these women are experiencing. And so they really took it to a whole other level in working with Wendy. I understand that one of the trunk songs ended up remaining or a couple of the trunk uh, Yeah, actually, three of the trunk songs. The process, as Wendy was saying, before she started by soliciting through ASCAP and BMI, trunk songs, which, for those of your listeners who might not know that term, it's, it refers to a, a song that's not been produced on or off Broadway as part of a show that a lyricist composer may have written for another show. It got cut, or maybe it was just a song they wrote that never made it into a show. In any case, there are three of those songs that are still part of the show that Wendy and David and John really loved and felt worked really well for um, for what became having it almost. We're very lucky to have those contributions from those people, from Jeff Blumenkrantz and uh, Libby Sains, Annie Kessler, and Stephen Schwartz. And he was incredibly generous, and he still is. And he's very supportive of composers and lyricists. And Aspiring, and yeah, mm -hmm. he's he he, he has works a at the ASCAP or the BMI work. Is it the ASCAP mm -hmm. or the BMI workshop that he? I think it's ASCAP. And it's ASCAP, and he's very, you know, nurturing and supportive of people who are aspiring and trying to break in. And, and this is like the classic example of, of how he's done it in our case by lending us and letting us use this song. We're going to be playing two songs from your show, and we're going to play the first one right now. Would you like to take a second to introduce it? Yes. Uh, this song is called The Day I Left the House in My Pajamas. And it's a song where Amy, the stay-at-home mom, gives a window into the day in the life of a stay-at-home mom. And this is by uh, Goldsmith Cavanaugh. All right, well, let's take a listen. It's 5 o'clock a.m. It's wake-up time for them. Delicious little faces screaming, Mom. You play a while, wear a smile, and that's just what I did the day I left the house in my pajamas. My husband pecked my cheek, my sex life for the week, and then he left for work so sweet and calm. The kids were great, cleaned every plate, then threw them on the floor the day I left the house in my pajamas. I can't explain it, I don't know why I snapped. They drew the nicest pictures on the wall. It wasn't they were cute or I felt trapped. It must have been the way my brain had slowed down to a crawl. Until I heard the door begin to shout, explore. And then before I knew it, I was gone. Without a warm, devoted mom and happy, loving spouse. I thought about the ways they laughed and cried I 
tore up the ground and scrambled back inside. Back home I'm full of shame as they calmly played a game of hide and seek your brother in the trash. I swept their crumbs, wiped their bums, and fixed another snack and never did get out of my pajamas. It was one moment, it happened in a flash, a feeling I was who I used to be. It didn't take that long for me to crash. That funny day, I got away with almost being me. But their dad came home that night and asked, your day all right? And I replied, in fact, I lost my Jeremiah, I understand you didn't you didn't start from a theater background at all, really. Well, I actually early I tried to start from a theater background. I had very limited success, but I had always aspired to be um, a comic performer and writer. That's what I really had had been my dream early on, and what I was pursuing. I was uh, I was living in L.A. at the time. I had just moved to L.A. hoping to get work as a, a writing comedy for television, and um, I was supporting myself doing handyman work and and installing projection TVs into people's homes and high-end stereos. And one of the people for whom I was doing an installation, we just sort of became friendly, and he kind of took a liking to me. And, and he was a, a senior executive at Warner Brothers Television at the time. And so, to make a long story a little shorter, I was offered an introductory uh, level job at NBC, and I, be- I became a network executive. Wendy has been so, in our relationship, we've been married now, in December will be 15 years, and she's really been so supportive in following me back and forth where I've had to go for the work opportunities. And again, that's sort of where having it almost the frustrations of doing that, of giving yourself over and your professional life over to support or be in support of your spouse, really were the seeds of this what became this show. But in any event, we just moved back to New York three months ago for my latest job, and it was right around the time that we moved that we got word that we'd been accepted by the New York Musical Theater Festival. Moving and getting this show produced at the same time must have been a crazy experience. <laughs> yep, it's been very crazy, that's for sure. <laughs> that's, a, that's the nice way of putting it. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's good crazy. You should, everyone should have such uh, problems as you know, that kind of craziness and stress. Now, with your TV background, this was kind of your first foray into producing for theater. Yeah. As a producer, did you find the cost to be what you expected them to be? Well, Actors' Equity Association, the the union that represents the uh, actors and the stage managers in Broadway and off-Broadway shows, has very specific guidelines for what you're allowed to spend, how much they cap, how much you can spend on a given production, depending upon the level of production. So anyway, there was this number... And we were like, oh, well, you know, that's fine. We're never going to approach that number. We don't have to worry about this. And suffice to say, we were, um, we were surprised at how uh, costs, uh, how much things cost and how 
how expensive it is to to do even a modest production. Some of these unexpected costs, do you think that if you'd had more experience producing shows that you might have been able to trim some of those back? Or? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think that with experience comes understanding and relationships you have. And once you've done it, you know, you, you, you realize, oh, God, I wouldn't have made that mistake. Uh, well, Wendy, do you want to tell us what dates the show is performing? The show is going to be from September 13th through 17th at the New World Stages. That's Wednesday through Sunday. And you can log on to our website, which is www.havingitalmost.net for times. Do you want to take a second and introduce the last song we're going to play from your show? I would love to. Uh, This song is also written by David Goldsmith and John Cavanaugh, and it's called Wildly Platonic. And it's sung by the career woman, who also is a mom, but who has made the choice to put her career first. But this particular song is about marriage after 13 years being, um, let's say, less than... uh, the most, no offense, Jeremiah. No, well, you'll, you'll notice that we had to go to Goldsmith and Kavanaugh to write the song because Wendy would have had no idea how to express feelings of a marriage that is less than completely exciting and stimulating. <laughs> it's called Wildly Platonic. All right. Well, take, let's take a listen to that, and thanks for stopping by. Thanks, Thank Michael. you. My marriage is like a love song, like being the operative word. You makes me say, ah, what a pal. As years go by, you make me swoon with indifference. Yes, I'm wildly platonic with you. I'm madly lethargic with you. The sight of you makes me say, yes, let's order a pizza. Of your voice, send me on a trip to the movies. Yes, I'm madly lethargic with you. Is it your flowing hair in the sink that makes me go all apathetic? Is it that surefire diet you're always on? Or could my bending your ear with my career be somehow unmagnetic? your clothes. We need some new curtains. I long to feel your hot heart. God, we gotta repaint the kitchen. I'm breathlessly neutral, so fervently neutral, and fiercely impassive with you. The touch of your hand makes me say, oh, do you have one that vibrates? I yearn to taste your fiery red. Uh-oh, go ahead, Shelly. I'm fiercely impassive with you. You drive me laconic. It's mildly ironic how just as I'm thinking our love's grown so deep. That's the moment we kiss and I just want to sleep. And I think how we're friends and by now I'm too numb. And it's been 15 years and why can't I come?
Once again, that was Having It Almost. I'd like to take just a moment to give recognition to some New York merchants who are really helping spread the word about Broadway Bullet. First off is The Colony. The Colony is a great store on 49th and Broadway. They carry all sorts of musical theater CDs, sheet music, and karaoke. Just the best selection you can find anywhere. And not only are they in New York at 49th and Broadway, but they also have a website online, colonymusic.com, that you can check out for all your needs. You know, if you go into the store, too, Marty and his friendly staff are always willing to help and point out some of the best selections that are available. So check out colonymusic.com or stop by at 49th and Broadway. Also, we'd really like to thank the Drama Bookshop, which is on 40th Street between 8th and 7th Avenues. And they also have an online shop at dramabookshop.com. These guys are the place to go. They have the most extensive selection of plays, books on theater, books on film, resource books for theater people and film people. It's a great place to hang out, and they also have a lot of great events in their nice, intimate space. So be sure to check both these guys out. They're really helping spread the word about BroadwayBullet.com. But let's jump into our next show. Again, with all the diversity, we've got a rock musical about superheroes. Let's hear about it. I'm sitting here with one of the creators and the lead actor from The Emerald Man, which is performing at the New York Musical Theater Festival. How you two doing? Hey, Good. Mike. How you doing? Good. You guys want to introduce yourselves quickly? Sure. My name is Janet Cole Valdez, and I wrote the book and lyrics to Emerald Man, the rock musical. And I am Ben Rausch. Uh, I'm playing the part of Duncan slash Emerald Man. Janet, do you want to tell us a little bit about the show? Sure. It has murder, intrigue, comic books, superheroes. Oh, it's uh, more specific. What's it about? <laughs> Basically, it's a modern-day Don Quixote based on a true story. The, the, the guy in our story is obsessed with comic books and superheroes, and he decides to reinvent himself as a superhero. But the true story that it's based on has to do with a friend of mine in L.A. who's a musician. One day is in the middle of giving a lesson, and his phone rings, and he says, hello. And the person said, is this Marty? Yes. Are you sitting down? Well, no. Who is this? I'm your son. Oh, my God. And he finds out that he has this son that he never knew existed. Wow. And the son, from the son's side of the story, he was 15 years old, growing up with his mom, and his mom takes up with this biker boyfriend. Oh and the God. boyfriend says to the mom, I don't like your kid, so it's, you, it's him or me. And the mom chooses the boyfriend, oh kicks the 15-year-old kid out to fend for himself. Oh, my God. And the kid is so cool. He decided to reinvent himself, gave himself a new name, a new identity. He put himself through high school. He was a musician just like his dad that he never knew. So oh he joined God. the army and played in the band for four years, put himself through college. And when he decided he was ready, he called his dad and said, are you sitting down? Oh. And when my friend told me that, I said, wow, that sounds like a musical. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but I, that was a good starting point, but I needed a real theme. And yeah. I personally have always loved the theme of Don Quixote. Yeah. The one guy who looks at an ordinary thing and sees all the possibilities, looks at life and sees all the beauty and wonder and magic. And he's the guy that everyone says is completely crazy because he doesn't mm. agree with how everyone else sees things. So I decided to use that as the theme. Yeah. So we start off with our, our kid. And he runs away, and he becomes Emerald Man. Wow. This is the first time I'm hearing the true story part. I know the... I've read the script, but this is the first time I'm hearing the real true story part. Yeah, it's a good story. Wow. Now I'm even more excited than I already am. 
cool. I understand this is a pretty ambitious production with a, a rather large cast. How large is it? We have 12 actors. We've got a big ensemble. We've got a totally kick-ass pop rock score, <laughs> um, really rocking. We've got amazing people in it. We've got a guy in our ensemble named Koniko who won awards as a hip-hop choreographer. Wow. And our musical director, Sean Goff, has played with just everyone and their brother and all kinds of Broadway shows. Our director has been on Broadway himself. We've got a, a big, very exciting group of people. Yeah, if you're hearing Ben's uh, shocks of surprise there, it's because uh, for anybody who's listening outside of New York, a lot of times these shows are put together very quickly, and, yeah. and uh, we're recording this ahead of time, and Ben has indeed just gotten the script. and uh, I just got I got the part two days ago. It was two <laughs> days ago, and I've read the script uh, before the first callback. There was two callbacks, and then, uh, yeah, and I got the hard copy of the script today, and I've heard snippets of the music, and but uh, I got my full full CD today, so... I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, we were actually blown away by your acting, by the way. Thank he is you. just so wonderful in the part. You just believe that he is this kid, Duncan. So, so, Ben, did you know that you wanted this role? Is that why, did you choose a song specifically geared towards? Well, there, 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 are three other, there was three shows in the room that I could have auditioned for, and this was the only part that, the only lead part that I was appropriate for. The other parts were men in their 30s or women parts, and so I said, oh, teenager pop rock singer who wants to be a superhero that's me <laughs> and fighting you get to fight i get to fight absolutely <laughs> <laughs> now um i understand that you have a background um in other stuff besides <gasps> theater background. oh my goodness yeah. <laughs> Sounds yes, I've been a songwriter all my life since the age of three. Wow. When I was very young, I got hired to be a staff songwriter at Motown. Of course, this was long after the heyday of Motown. Thing. And have you written any theater before this? Well, I did write another musical along with another collaborator of mine, a fabulous composer named Deborah Robitel, originally from London, and we put a show on in L.A. And to be <laughs> honest, it's always been my dream to put on a show in New York. So right now, I am living my dream. I'm living in a sublet. And so, Janet, who are some of the other participants creatively on the show? Well, I have two amazing composers as my collaborators. One is the fabulous Mark Bosserman, who's been performing since the age of nine. He's a piano player and a composer and songwriter, singer-songwriter. And the other is my husband, Tom Valdez, who is a composer, producer, and amazing rock guitar player. And they wrote the show with me. And then here in New York, Kim Vasquez, our producer, has put together an amazing creative team with people that have all sorts of credits and I would love to name all of them but if you go to the website you can read all about them. Alright, well when can people come see Emerald Man? September 12th through September 22nd at 37 Arts Theatre C. And where should they go to find the specific dates and times? They can go to our website www.emeraldman.com Play one of the songs from Emerald Man. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about this song, Janet? Sure. The song is called Superheroes. It's the very first song of the show. The character Duncan is having an argument with his mom who's so worried about the bills and the lights are getting shut off and she gets fired from her job. And Duncan, who is obsessed with comic books and superheroes, is saying, Mom, don't worry. Good always triumphs over evil. Here's Superheroes. The world could fall apart and all you do is read your comics.
The washer's broke, the sky is falling The evening news beyond appalling Always someone crying somewhere Always someone dying out there Rich men starving, goldfish croaking shows to catch at the New York Musical Theater Festival. Remember, you can find out more about all the shows at the New York Musical Theater Festival by visiting nymf.org. The last show we're going to talk about this episode is a very ambitious project. These guys actually are not going to be getting into New York City until right before their show goes up at the end of September. So we did a phone interview with these guys. Hi, well, I'm on a conference call with some of the creators behind the musical Journey to the West, which is going to be playing at the New York Musical Theater Festival. How are you guys doing? Terrific. Great, great. <laughs> Would you like to take a second to introduce yourselves? I'm Richard Oberacker. I'm the composer of the score, and I'm also the co-lyricist and co-book writer, as well as the director. And I'm Rob Taylor. I'm the other half of that co-lyricist and co-book writer partnership. And I'm uh, Elizabeth Cox. I'm the costume designer. First off, why don't you tell us a little bit about what Journey to the West is about and based on? Actually, I think the best person to, to talk about that would be Rob, who... Um, 
spent some time in China and actually kind of found the property itself and brought it to me. Well, I, I did spend a good deal of time in China. I spent a year and a half living there and teaching music and English there and studying Chinese. And the work, the musical Journey to the West, is based on a 16th century Ming Dynasty novel, which is probably the most beloved work of all of Chinese literature. It's actually about a monk. It's based in truth, actually, a grain of truth anyway. About 2,000 years ago, a monk from the Tang Dynasty traveled across the entire Asian continent in search of the original Buddhist scriptures, which were said to be in India, and then he brought them back to China. So in essence, much in the way our sort of Judeo-Christian tradition with the Bible is concerned, it tells the story of how Buddhism came to be in their culture. And along the way, he is, he's guided by uh, three spirit gods that are chosen from him, for him by his celestial lover, Kuan Yin, this goddess. And it's uh, Tubao, who is a, a god of the land who takes the form of a giant pig. And there's a water dragon who takes the form of, as a giant bodyguard named Tsunami. And then there's the Monkey King, which is the most famous character out of the whole novel. He is sort of his, his defender and uh, the warrior that sees the monk safely across. And um, they're very fantastic adventures, a lot of battles and uh, matches against demons and impossible odds and creatures coming up out of the earth to stop them. And it's really, really fantastic. Well, before we talk a little bit more, well, let's play one of the songs from the show. Would you like to introduce the first song? Sure. Um, this is a song called Happy Little Arhat, which is the second piece in the show. It's where we see this, this monk who's about to take this journey for the first time. An arhat in uh, Buddhist myth is a celestial being that has lived several thousand lives and has finally achieved nirvana. So at this part of the beginning of the story, you meet Zhang Lai, who is this monk. Zhang Lai, the happy little arhat, being thrilled about being in heaven for his first day working for Buddha. All right, well, let's take a listen. Just try to take it and look around. I'm just a simple little arhat. It's like I won the big lottery, finally achieved it. Who would have believed it? I've lived through thousands of different lives. I've learned the lessons that each life taught. I've lived as rich and poor men beast even an iguana finally nirvana after year after year to be standing right here in the light of mortals and working for the big guy to at last be allowed to be part of the crowd who has lived all their lives and there's no denying that i know how lucky i got i'm one happy little arhat You see that beautiful woman there, she loves this simple little arhat. We've waited many millennia just to find out whether we would be together. We've lived as lovers in other lives, stayed faithful even through a tough spot. Made legends written in poetry, a lot of people jealous, that's what people tell us. We've been known as Siddhartha and Kabbalah, also showed up as Rama and Ramallah. Took a turn playing Shiva and his Sita. Vishnu and Lakshmi, it's true, but this day we're nothing but a couple of happy little arhats, grinning little arhats. After year, after year, to be 
standing right here in the light of immortals and working for the big guy. And she throws me a glance. There's a rise in my pants. Don't be shocked. There are things that last even in the big sky. Look how lucky I got. I'm one happy little arhat. Hmm, the highest level of consciousness you have reached. Heaven uses. With your eternal love, will you now live? Jang Life, what are you doing? Being happy, Holai. I finally made it through all of my reincarnations, and I have a real title Arhat of the Future. Arhat of the Future? He gave you Arhat of the Future? Yep, and I stand for all the possibilities and unexplored opportunities to come. Well, as you know, I'm the Arhat of the Past, and I stand for Been There, Done That. So get over yourself and put a cork in it, will you? We've got work to do. Bitter party of one, your table's ready? Hey, Attila the Hun called. He wants his disposition back. <laughs> I'm telling you, you're not gonna ruin my day no matter how hard you try. Invent hardly! All my lessons are learned, and my time here is earned. It took millions of years to be working for the big guy. See these robes that I wear, I've got honors to spare. More achievements than you, and there's no denying that I landed like a big shot. Thankful for what I've got. I'm one smiling little arhat. I'm one silly little arhat. Goofy little, humble, wide-eyed, deep in love, and oh so happy. I'm one happy little arhat. I understand a lot of this show has been put together through some long-distance collaboration. Elizabeth, I, I imagine there would be a lot of challenges to be doing the costume design from long distance. Yeah, we've been mailing a lot of um, fabric swatches and things like that through the mail, and, you know, this is, you know, eight versions... 1.0, 2.0, 3.0 digitally and, and things like that. That's been a challenge all in itself, but that too has been interesting. You know, I'm very acquainted with um, FedEx at this point. It's been good. Even though there are only 12 people in the cast, long distance, Elizabeth is designing nearly 70 different character looks for the show because these at least six of the characters play multiple roles to cover all the many different fantasy characters that appear in the story. It's been great to, to work with things like color and things like that to kind of give you that a kind of a central pop of, ah, we've changed, ah, we've changed, ah, we've changed. So Now, Richard, I understand you have a heavy background with the Cirque du Soleil. I'm the first American conductor that Cirque has ever hired. Uh, what's been spectacular for Journey to the West is all of the Peking opera influences that we're bringing to the Nymph Festival are going to be created by a gentleman named Bai Ga, who is the captain of the Wushu martial arts team for us here at Cirque du Soleil. And he's going to be creating all of the martial arts fight choreography, as well as all the traditional Peking opera conventions that we'll be using. And interestingly enough, Bai Ga, for many, many, many years, traveled throughout China and the world, actually, with a very uh, renowned Peking opera company from China. And he is very, very well known in China for playing the Monkey King in episodes of Journey to the West. And then also through my Cirque du Soleil connections, the gentleman who's designing the set and the props also works for Cirque du Soleil, works for Ka on the props there, doing all of their specialty props. So the resources that I have here with such an incredible company have influenced greatly the work that we're going to be bringing to the festival. And very few Americans have been able to sort of get inside that company and work so closely with them and learn what their, what their formula is and what some of their secrets creativity are. And I'm just really thrilled to finally find a musical that actually can benefit from that philosophy. And, and um, meeting people like Elizabeth, who has that sensibility of fantasy, I think you're going to see her 
costumes look like they came out of a Cirque du Soleil show. They're very fanciful. They're very forward-thinking. The whole show is just steeped in that tradition that they've brought to the world, and we're really excited to be able to take it one step further into the world of musical theater. So you want to tell us what dates we can catch this in New York, Richard? Absolutely. In New York, we are going to be playing September 25th, which is a Monday, through October 1st, which is a Sunday. And we are in the 37 Arts Theater, which is on 37th Street between 9th and 10th Avenue. And uh, should, our, should the listeners go check your website for the specific dates and times? www.journeytothewestthemusical.com. And on that website, they can download for free the entire concept recording, including the two songs that they uh, will have heard in this broadcast. Maybe you could quickly introduce the last song we're going to play, and maybe Elizabeth could also address if there's a, a costume or visual element to this next number we're going to play. Well, this is I've Learned Mine. It's the end of Act One. Rob, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? At this point, Kuan Yin has been extremely disappointed uh, with... River Song's weakness as a human being, this man who in celestial guise was her eternal lover, has let her down in a big way, and she is now threatening to abandon them and retreat to heaven and leave them on their own to complete this impossible quest that they have to make. Quan, um, we kind of had for... Um the entire uh, notion of having a, a little bit of a sense of, of light. So Quan's costume also is, is kind of a pale, creamy color, and it also has a little bit of, of, of silver. So it, the whole her, she kind of embodies light and has a, a kind of lovely textural quality, almost like feathers. That's playing a little bit more on a Western notion of a deity, that kind of quality of, of air and being a heavenly body. So we have a kind of a grand gown for her with a, a full a full skirt. We had a departure point for her in some fashions by Alexander McQueen and Izzy Miyake, as well as the theatrical designer uh, Aiko. So we kind of had that grand, grand gown as a departure point with those artists' work, and she is going to be very just juxtaposed posed against the spider queen who is who is a much darker kind of purple rich earthier element so that that will be a nice kind of dichotomy in, in two of our women characters in this this particular scene she's been scorned by her lover with this spider woman <laughs> why am i still searching always reaching always wanting something more this isn't my journey why should I seek pain I've never felt before? And they warned me, but I thought I have the heart of an immortal. They informed me that to interfere should be a last resort. I'll never make the same mistake again. I was a fool to cross the line. You have so many lessons to learn, but I Protected from the urge to reach for you A chosen path through not a lie You have so many lessons to learn But I've learned So keep on walking Just take that first step Despite how uncertain that step may be It will certainly be taken without 
once again, that was Journey to the West. Be sure to catch that at New York Musical Theater Festival. Visit nymf.org. Wow, this was a jam-packed episode. You're going to need an 80-minute CD if you want to burn it on a CD. We're going to try to keep the other episodes a little bit shorter, but I just couldn't bear to slice out any of Chris Stewart's interview because it's so enlightening and talks so much about what we're going to be addressing over the next several weeks. Remember, you can find more information about all the shows we're talking about on our website, www.broadwaybullet.com. Also, if you are a big theater fan and did enjoy the show, please take a moment to give us a, you know, hopefully five-star review at iTunes. The more reviews you get, the more chance they'll keep featuring this show and spread the word to other theater fans. If you're subscribing to the program through another aggregator, you know you can review on sites like Podcast Alley and such as well. We're going to be putting up this show every Wednesday evening, so be sure you're subscribed through iTunes or another podcast aggregator so you don't miss a single episode. Also remember that they are starting selling memberships for the New York Musical Theater Festival 2006 season. It's a great deal. Come on, you can spend way more than that on just one Broadway show, and you'll be able to be treated to a whole ton of great emerging shows. And if you don't want to go the membership route, get individual tickets starting September 1st, and hope you get in to see the show you want. Anyway, thanks for tuning in to this very special inaugural edition of Broadway Bullet. Broadway Bullet is produced by NextBigHit.com. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and I'll be here every week to give you an insider's look at everything happening in the theater scene. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And, if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, Go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.